Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the second episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Today's topic is the role of emotions in experiences. With me are the co-authors of The Experience Economy, published by Harvard Business Review Press. Co-founder of Strategic Horizons, LLP, B. Joseph Pine II is an internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and management advisor. Joe's many books include The Experience Economy, Infinite Possibility, Authenticity, and Mass Customization. Joe lives in Delwood, Minnesota. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks, Dan. You should mention that's not too far away from you in St. Paul there. That is true. And also with us today is Jim Gilmore. He is the co-author of The Experience Economy and Authenticity and the author of Look a Practical Guide for Improving Your Observational Skills, a book definitely of interest to me. He teaches at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, Likewise, welcome to the show, Jim. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate uh, joining. That's great. Thank you. Uh, So let's set the stage here. We have a book that was originally published in 1999, and now it's out with a new 20th anniversary edition in 2019. Uh, So I believe, Joe, you're going to tell us briefly kind of what's the book about. And if Jim will then jump in with a a sense and understanding of what is new about the recent edition. Sure, Dan. The, the, The book basically says that we've gone from an agrarian economy based off commodities through an industrial economy based off goods, through a service economy, and that today we're in an experience economy. What, the, the, what consumers and increasingly business people want most of all are experiences, memorable events that engage each individual in an inherently personal way. And so what that means is that goods and services have most everywhere become commoditized, and companies have to shift up to this, this next level. I won't say a new level because experiences have always been around. But this next level of economic value where they stage experiences for their customers. And then the book uh, goes through a number of of frameworks and and principles for how to go about uh, uh, turning goods into services and services into experiences. Okay. And Jim, you know, we've got a new 20th anniversary edition. What's the what's been added to the book? What's the the fresh point of view? Yeah, although uh, technically. well, it was it was published on the the occasion of of it being out twenty years. We did do a a rewrite or revision of the book um, to have it go into paperback uh, approximately ten uh, years ago, and that was when we actually sort of scrubbed the book, not for any new content, but basically uh, update the examples, so less references to a America Online and and more to about Facebook, for example. And that was all a result of a student of mine. For of course, I. Uh, had taught at University of Virginia Darden School a, a one-week course in the experience economy. At the at the end of the week, a student approached me and said, "Mr. Gilmore, they say Mr. at uh, UVA, you know, really enjoyed the course, really enjoyed the book, but man, the examples are like really old." I was like, <laughs> "What?" 
you know? And so initially I, I, you know, I still have a copy of the book where I went through and, and, you know, highlight in black example, uh, highlighted in red the examples that have to come out green, like maybe put something new here. So, and we, but in that process, Joe and I, uh, I think I counted six new frameworks or models. We ended up adding to the book just to, yeah. based on what we had, what we had learned and uh, wrote a new, uh, preface then so we once again talked to harvard okay we're coming up on 20 years what should we do the book still has legs it still has relevancy i think that's what's amazing about about the book that we're we're humbled by and here you know we have we joe and i really challenge ourselves to think deeply about okay what's the context in which um where do we stand sort of a, a state of the experience economy if you will so the new preface really is just so rich in content it's almost a book uh, unto it, uh, unto its, uh, unto itself, and, and even for people who are familiar with the book, um, I think for the preface alone. Um, but then, uh, the other thing I'll say about the preface it's a it's a new lens through which to read the rest of the book, right? So part of the purpose of the preface, not just to, it's not like an added chapter. We offer perspective on how to revisit what we were accurate on twenty plus uh, years ago. To give you some sense of of this, uh, Joe and I. Uh, early on in the history, the saga of the experience economy, we had a meeting with Harvard Business Review Press, and one of the uh, ma- uh, managers there uh, sh- shared some statistics that, I, that were forever cemented in my mind. He said, at that time, and I'm sure it hasn't not changed significantly, that in, in the United States, about 10,000 business books written every year. And of those 10,000, about 90% will not sell 10,000 copies. The 10% that do sell 10,000 copies, 90% of them will sell their 10,000 copies in the first six months, and then they're over. Uh, and I use that for advice to people say, look, first thing you can learn from that is don't read any book, business book until after six months. Because it's, <laughs> it's relevancy is sort of the shelf life. The shelf life is about three months. Um, but, you know, we sold well over 10 years and well more than 10,000 copies every single year. And that's just in English. It's like 19 languages now. So... Joe and I struck, I think as I reflect on things, we our, our thinking and our writing was attached to a long-term structural shift in the very fabric of the economy. Not a management fad, not even a trend. It's it's a it's, it's we define the landscape in which um, business and any organizational thought ought to be considered. Sure. And let me, I'll jump in on that point because I, I like listeners to know a little bit of wh- why I chose the book. And uh, I mean, one is, I, I agree with you. I just think it's a, it's a notable book. I mean, there's more than one instance where this shows up in the top 100 business books of all time. So this is a, a book that really does, you know, set out a new landscape, an important landscape, a transformative landscape. And I think that's big. Uh, a second thing, just on a more personal note, you know, I very early in my business career and just prior to starting Sensory Logic, I worked for a, another pioneer in this field, Lou Carbone, at Experience Engineering. So very uh, similar opportunity for me to think about uh, what was transforming in the business culture. Uh, the last thing is, you know, you just mentioned you wanted something that wasn't a management fad. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, my specialty is emotions because emotions don't go away. Uh, they are here eternally. It's just a question of how well we leverage them and understand them and so forth. So um, I chose the book in part because I think if you're talking about experiences, you are inevitably talking about emotions. You really can't have an experience uh, without some sort of emotion or combination of emotions resulting. 
But let's go back to your, your comment a moment ago, Jim. You mentioned that the the preface really brings an entirely new dimension to the book, uh, a kind of a new lens to it. So it seems to me that's worth exploring for a bit sure. more here before we move deeper into the conversation. Well, as concisely as I can, just maybe uh, share a couple of cuts uh, at it. First, let's just start off with sort of three big ideas that, that, are, that are woven in. One is that time is the currency of experiences. That um, people now can, what the consumption of time is the key. In some sense, we're designing uh, experiences are the design of uh, of time. To your point on emotions, how people feel in time, uh, uh, for for example, and you know, in fact, I can't help but think about current current events. If you think about, you know, how, now is under great scrutiny how people are spending their time, and uh, that self awareness. You know, once uh, um, once progress is made on the on the health front, um, that's not going to. In fact, I think it'll be intensified. In fact, we could argue that uh, to have people come to your experience, especially even the at whatever pace people individually return to spaces where people congregate, right? Time, which has been most impacted by by uh, the, the pandemic, that. If anything, our book is helpful because it's going to really have to be worth going to something versus experience it at, at home, right? So I think the bar will be raised. People will still want experiences, but I think it's going to uh, make it more difficult. So time is the currency of experiences. It's and that takes us to a competition point. The second big idea in the book is that every business is competing for time from the customer, whether it's a consumer or whether it's business to business. And in fact, uh, we state in the book that every business has the same competitor, and that is the smartphone, right? Um, and, sure. you yep. can, and, and you could say, and it's cousin streaming video, right? I, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, now, Jim, could you repeat that? I was checking my text messages. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, which was as Joe says that my, my experience of listening to me it was not engaging enough. Fact, if you <laughs> cannot hold people's attention, right. they can leave you in the swipe of a screen, gone. And that's true of a consumer in a store, um, that's true of a, a, a person in a business meeting, that's true of a customer on a sales call. And then part of that translates in, in, we have some interesting new metrics we think in the book, one of which is to play off of the idea of the, the time value of money, a, a very longstanding sort of uh, measure and come up with the money value of time. And that is that any business can calculate the experiential value they are creating by, or, or they're collecting, right? That they're charging for by, by calculating based on the revenue, how much they're getting paid per minute, right? So, so, you know, a cup of coffee might be $5 an hour going to a movie might be $12 an hour. Any business can translate the experiential value they're making by doing that calculation. It's a common denominator. Money value of time is a common denominator. And, and, if, and you would think in the current circumstances, people are going to spend their time and they're going to spend the most money when they think that time is most valued, they're gonna, they're gonna, and I think it's that is only going to be in a heightened awareness after people have spent so much time uh, in ways they don't want to be spending time. Okay, well, I have spent twenty years using the uh, scientific tool facial coding to actually capture uh, people's, often consumers' uh, reactions, and in real time as they're happening. So one of the things I noted in your book, which I think is correct, is to bring into 
uh, into context here, Daniel Kahneman, uh, famous behavioral psychologist, looking at what he called the peak end rule, but also really the beginning that people tend to particularly respond emotionally and otherwise to events when they start, uh, that there's a peak opportunity, a climax, as it were, and there's an end point. So I know from my research that very often there's a big drop away within three to four seconds uh, initially to response. And then you're looking for, can you create a peak? Uh, Some experiences, frankly, do not. So what can you say about timing, you know, over that duration? Yes, I might have the the movie is obvious because the movie's got a climax to it. But uh, let's take Starbucks, since that's such a seminal example in your book. And you 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 buy the cup of coffee, and you maybe you stay for an hour in the coffee shop. Can you talk about the timing that you've seen, either at Starbucks or overall, and how timing and emotions work together? Well, the the um, as Jim said, uh, experiences are the design of time. And in fact, one of the frameworks that we added, as Jim mentioned, we had like six frameworks and models to the updated edition of the book. One of the things we added then, what's known as a Freitag diagram, which is which is the structure of experiences over time, and and as you say, it it basically you know the simplified version it basically you know begins in experiences, rises up to a climax, and then comes back down again, right? That's what dramatic structure is. But but so often experiences are very are very flat, uh, and there's not a lot of drama. Well, then they're not going to be as as engaging. Now you think well, let's, let's yeah, let's take Starbucks for example. Then, if I could jump in, what, what would you? And it could obviously vary by customer experience, but what what is at least one or two possibilities as to what might be the climax uh, at Starbucks? And people buy a lot of coffee, and Starbucks has done really well. Okay, I, I, I've heard Jim do this great analysis of Starbucks that begins yeah, yeah. You know, from the it? outside of it. So I'll let him talk about it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in fact. Uh, it, it, it's 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 I, I goes right off. I do use this example to illustrate the the diagram. I'll try to do the best I can without the the visuals. But if the well, I'll tell the whole story about how it came to me. Is, is I was in a meeting with a I won't name the company, but a major manufacturer of of packaged coffee. You know, coffee in a can. And that person said that they had done blind taste tests for their instant coffee, coffee crystals versus brewed coffee. And that in blind taste test, that um, uh, it, it fared just as well. And I said, well, congratulations, but I don't know anybody who drinks their coffee blindfolded. And then I topped up to a flip chart. I did the flight tag diagram. I said, here's the problem with instant coffee is that it's just too flat. There, there's Because the, the diagram is complication over time. I mean, it's just not very complicated. And I think it actually physiologically affects the taste. It's just, it's just flat line. Uh, versus even making a pot of coffee, right? Get the filter out, have the right amount of coffee. In fact, I'm now doing pots of coffee now at home, given that I'm home all the time. And then, you know, I'll mess up. You got to make sure I have the right amount of water, the right amount of coffee. You got to measure, put it in. And the climactic moment is when you take the first sip. Well, at, at a Starbucks, is actually not when you take the first sip. You go in, you get in line, like sort of flat. You, you look at the menu board. You see how, how, how long the line is. You see what, what you get closer. You can see what they're, what they're making today because they've got the names up in the three things. You go up there. You know, and then it's not good service, right? Because the person who you take the order to shouts it back to the person in the back who, who then makes it. And then they deliver it off of that, especially when it's busy, when it's on that tray. Like you're one of 12 competing cups of coffee. Like which one's mine? <laughs> and so it's bad service. But going through that, that's the climactic moment. When you find your cup, right, 
that's the climactic moment. And in fact, it is worse service, but I think physiologically even makes the coffee taste better because you've gone through that roller coaster, if you will, up and then back down the, the curve. So you have, that, you have that rising action, you know, and then in fact, you go in the, you go in the door, it's the, the uh, exposition, what's it about? Getting coffee, you're hit with the smell. It gets more and more complicated as you get closer to the line, rising action, and then and then finally you get your coffee. And then finally, as you find a place to to sit and enjoy the coffee, you come back down to the curve to the denouement and and so forth. So, so okay. So, so in other words, they're, they're selling both the coffee and the roller coaster. <laughs> well, yes. Well, well, the, well, the coffee is a the cup of coffee is a mere prop, and the making of the coffee is literally the stage because they're behind there making it. You get to see all that making. They're shouting instructions to each other. The noises, the gurgles. And uh, so forth. So, the, as we say, the, the services are the stage and the good is the prop for the time you spend at Starbucks. Interestingly, with $25 billion in annual revenue, at least pre coronavirus, um, that's right, that equates to a billion customer hours per year if you assume half the customers stay uh, in the uh, uh, stay with their in the in premises with their coffee for a half an hour. I think that's the calculation we have to get to 25 which we think is quite conservative. Um, that never, I mean, that's just, that, so again, that time is the currency. That, that revenue is based. That's a way of, of, of equating how you come up with the, the, the value of the time. Yeah, well, they've certainly succeeded. I remember being in Beijing on a business trip, and I came out of my hotel, which had a Starbucks built into it, and there was two other Starbucks, like almost literally across the street from one another. So density did not seem to kill off the offer. Well, that's, that's uh, all all three of them were in business. That's the old so joke let's Star- shift a, Starbucks yeah, of let's Starbucks. shift a little bit. Um, go back to your introduction, Jim, uh, Joe, rather of these these four stages of the economic growth from yep. commodities to services to experiences, and then a fourth level that's you know in the book, uh, even though the book is entitled "The Experience Economy," which is the transformations. So if we went back to each of them, and since this is a show about uh, EQ. And uh, we're focusing on the role of emotions in experiences. Can you take me through each of those stages from commodities on upward and, and identify for me what you think might be the, the relevant emotions that were implicit uh, in each of those stages of economic uh, change? Sure. Yeah, evolution? I, yeah it's interesting. I've, I've never thought of it that way, Dan. And Jim might be able to, uh, to jump in here as well. But the first stage is agrarian economy with commodities. And if you think about it, you know, for for millennia, basically, most people lived at a subsistence level. Uh, you know, I just read an article, you know, about the current pandemic and some of the problems with the agricultural supply chain and that. And they basically said, well, you know, in the previous things, bubonic plague and other of these things, you know, if there's a if there's any any um, um, problem with growing crops because it, people die, you know, from that. And so the you know you, there's the emotions is more around um, the subsistence of, of, of needing the, that to sustain yourself you know so that if you don't have it you very quickly get into you know sadness and grief and you know potentially uh, uh, anger at the at the at the situation and and so forth um, but then once you have it you know there's I, you know there's not that much emotion maybe in, you know perhaps in in uh, uh, cooking meals for your family and the satisfaction that you and you know, joy you get from that. Um, at the at the goods level, um, you're looking for you know for the, the the functional benefits of what those goods provide, uh, whether it's a car to uh, you know to get to work and back and and so forth. 
And uh, and again, it's 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 really at a lower level. Now, some people they they want a car, for example, that uh, gives them a, a level of of um, uh, you know joy. Maybe not quite the right word, but enjoyment at least. You know, if they've got a convertible, they got a fast car, they got ones that that turns well and so forth. You think about Tesla today with its ludicrous mode and that. So we can uh, get those, but but notice it's it's really the driving experience that they get you that that the goods are there really to enable these experiences that we have, and as such they can do you know the entire wheels I talk about, you know, and, and similarly with with services services like cutting our hair and uh, um, changing the oil in our car, cleaning our clothes, and and those sorts of things. Um, the most of those below the level of experience do not have a lot of emotion involved unless something spectacular happens, often by accident, or unless it's not there when you want it. Like today, I I am now uh, ten weeks past my last haircut, and let me tell you, I have emotions about it. <laughs> you know, really bothering the, the the heck out of me, uh, but that's because it's not there. Where emotions really, truly come into play is with that fourth level of, of experiences, where you can have experiences that run the, the gamut of emotion. You may think, well, primarily we want things that are around the happiness, around joy and that sort of thing. But you think about, Jim mentioned uh, you know, the roller coaster at Starbucks. Well, think about a literal roller coaster, right, where there's fear involved and, and sometimes even terror. You know, people are are uh, going out and seeking those experience. There are rage rooms where people go in and bash things with baseball bats to have that emotion. There, you know, there, there are experiences out there, I believe, for, for every kind of emotion, um, even if most of them are not the, you know, the more darker ones, we'll say. I don't know whatever word you use to, to apply that. Well, here's, then, here's the transformation the level is when you use experiences to guide people to change to help them achieve their aspirations, like uh, fitness centers, like healthcare, uh, like coaches of all stripes and so forth, management consulting. They're all about, about helping their customers achieve their aspirations. And so you have uh, the range of emotions that fit with experiences that, that, that fit toward the aspiration that you have. You know, for example, if you're, if you're losing weight, well, what's your motivation for losing weight? For some people, it may be, in fact, be disgust you know, at how they are and how they've let themselves go and so forth. Others, it may be admiration for somebody that they see. And I say, I want to be like her and, and so forth. Or, or um, and it may be there's a level of anticipation as an emotion about what could happen through this experience. What, what, what is, you know, what's going to be the end outcome of it and so forth. So I think again, with transformations, um, you're tending to want, you know, obviously positive transformations. You have motions on the end of it, but the motivations for those, uh, maybe you know more on the the negative side again, if that's the right word. Okay, yeah. and, and Jim, it sounds like you wanted to jump in on yeah, something there. Apologize, uh, this three locations it shows you the, the deficiencies of not same place, same time, same place. I, it, this is a place where I uh, take exception or I I, I differ because I do not think that it, I do not equate concerns about the emotions with when you get to experiences. I think emotions exist regardless of what economic offering. Someone's, it might be more intensified. It might be uh, more often. Uh, there might be more emotions that are provoked. But one can have emotion can have emotional reaction reaction to, to commodities. Popcorn. Oh, I love popcorn. You know, or a physical. You know, people ha- can have emotional reactions to a certain car when they're 
you know, not even driving it, but just but but just having it. Uh, they can love Chick Fil A's chicken, you know, uh, chicken sandwich making. So to me, it's more important to say, well, wh- to ask, how does the nature of emotions perhaps differ, even in your industry, as you sh- if you shift from goods to service to experiences, might the emotions be manifested differently, and in and in what way? And and here, I, I in, in thinking about uh, spending this time with you, I remember I once spoke at a conference in Switzerland. It was the emotional marketing conference, like worldwide uh, group. And one of the things, I did two things there, but the first all, so the first thing I did is I, 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 I shared a quote from C.S. Lewis, actually in his book called Christian Reflections, uh, if anybody wants to look this up. And here's the quote, I, I printed out ahead of time to read this. He says, in all our joys and sorrows, religious, aesthetic, or natural, I seem to find things almost incurably thus. They are about something. They are a byproduct of a logically prior act of attending to or looking towards something. We are not really concerned with the emotions. The emotions are our concern about something else. And that begs the question, why is a certain emotion provoked? Why does something make you happy? Why does something make you fearful? And it's, that's the landscape. I think it is very fascinating to think about the emotions. Okay. I know I, I, I appreciate that a lot, and I, I like C.S. Lewis, certainly. Um, I'll offer my own perspective in thinking about the question as I reread your book, which I read back in the original edition in 1999. When I think about commodities, I, I would certainly agree with you, Joe, You know, when you mentioned grief, because if I do not have the commodity, I may be starving to death in my family. So that's certainly, you know, sadness in its most profound sense uh, could certainly be apropos. Uh, I guess I also thought about fear and greed. Uh, fear that I'm not going to get access to that raw good, uh, greed if I manage to accumulate a lot of it and can take an advantage. Um, I, I saw a bit of a difference between goods and services because I know from my research over the years, certainly people can have a emotional response and do to products and how they function and what they can enable us to do and so forth. But I found pretty overwhelmingly that when people are involved and it's a people-to-people aspect, that's brought into the picture, that is the more likely that the stronger, more visceral responses come in. Just oh, well, we play well, off I, human nature. Well, Emotions been, are contagious. I've been going through my father's effects, right? Because uh, he, he died three years ago. And I'm going, I'm going through his correspondence. And I have not, I had the most uh, intense feelings of grief, not by being with my dad, not even at the, the funeral of my dad, but coming across some a physical good for the first time, a piece of paper, written correspondence. Now, it's attached to a person, sure. right? It's the memory of a person. So again, that to me, that's the interesting thing. To, now, now we think about, okay, what's the nature of emotions re- related to other people? What's the nature of emotions when you're in their presence? What's the, what's the emotion when you're thinking about a person, when you're longing for a person? So I like person as a filter by which to think about it. And, 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 and to me, that you don't even need the necessarily the progression of economic value to consider that it's a it's a different entry point. And I think it's fascinating to think about your your point and about about the role of people. You you get mad at people, you love people. It's definitely would be a, a significant um, you know factor to consider. You know, a physical good can evoke something. Well, this is the car I used to take a drive in with my dad, or you know, this we used to go to this fast food outlet together. So I think it can be manifested or triggered 
might be the same word by by different economic offerings for different people. It it is true, Jim, just like your quote of C.S. Lewis, that all those things that you brought up, those emotions, they're concerned something else, your dad, you know, in particular. Right, right. Why why does this piece of paper, right, evoke emotion versus when the Wall Street Journal didn't do that to me this morning, right? right? The reason is because I have a prior concern about my father. But, but, you know, with a dead bird, it's not just people. I I see, you know, I see an animal run over like, oh, you know, it breaks my heart when I see a a cat killed in the road, even though I prefer dogs to cats. (laughs) (laughs) what i would say about memories is you know the the amygdala which is our emotional you know trigger device in the brain is located in the more emotionally centered part of the brain so memories and and emotions we really hold on to a memory because you know it it often has a searing impact on it on us and it's it's meaningful it has real significance so i don't want to run out of time here because we've probably got somewhere in the range about 15 minutes left. So let me just shift slightly, but staying with happiness, because I think that's one emotion we could often think of. Although I would say when I think about transformations, uh, the other, you know, emotion I would probably throw in is pride, you know, uh, pride. If I can achieve that transformation, if I can get there, shift my identity, lift myself to a new desirable level, I I think that could really be essential. that's, That's good. But to go back to, to happiness, so I, I think a simplistic way of, of looking at experiences, and I, I'm sure you're way beyond that, is, you know, Disney, of course, started with, well, what we, he always told people, including the Imagineers, you know, what we really sell at Disney World and Disneyland is we are, our product is not a product, it's a feeling, it's happiness. We create, manufacture, provide happiness here, and that's our goal, and remember that, that's how he oriented people. But in your book, of course, you talk about also that we have negative emotions and these have to be dealt with by a company in thinking about how it's designing and executing an experience. So when I think about it from what are kind of considered maybe the core emotions, essential emotions, you got happiness, obviously a positive surprise, which can create that wow opportunity for you, that sensation. And then there are four negative emotions uh, that I think most people would agree are pretty principal. And those would be sadness, anger. Uh, and disgust and fear. So I'm wondering how you see those four play for companies. Can they leverage them? Are they simply something they have to eliminate as part of the experience? Uh, I mean, you mentioned the the bat and and you know hitting things and other opportunities. You know, what have you seen more broadly as to the opportunities and the risk involved with these four emotions? I'll tackle that, Joe. That's interesting. You know, one of those rooms is called a rage room. So there, the room is actually named after an emotion. Right? You're 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 feeling rage. Underneath that might be frustration or stress. Again, other, you know, you're, you're in the middle of your final exam. I, I told my students, you know, your fraternities ought to open a, a rage room to smash things during finals week just because you want to get out your, your frustration. But it might be interesting to take various emotions and, you know, a happy room, a sadness room, and envision how, how research and, and figure out how might that, you know, because a room is also the small, time is the currency of experience, but a room in, is in the sense the smallest unit for the place to design an experience. And, you know, there's escape rooms, rage rooms, salt rooms, you know, uh, coloring book rooms. I mean, there's all different kinds of uh, rooms. So it might be interesting to say, how would a particular space be designed for a particular business uh, aimed at affecting a particular emotion? That would be an interesting provocation. 
Yeah, and Dan, you know your your story about uh, Disney. You you probably know this already, but um, you know, since you do a, lot, a great job at measuring emotions of people and experiences, and that they say that uh, Walt Disney measured the success of whether or not it was the happiest place on earth by at the end of the day when everybody else was leaving, he would go to the main gates and walk into the park so he could see their faces and and measure the smiles on their faces. Might, might I also I mean, Joe's one of the Disney fan. I think one of the reasons I'm not fond of Disney, and, and never, new thought here, never thought this before, is because it only aims at, aims at one emotion. That might mm-hmm. be a mistake. I mean, uh, to me, it might be interesting. The, in our book, Authenticity, which, by the way, starts with availability being the first consumer sensibility, which people are, you know, toilet paper being available, things we took, we, we took for granted, now availability is a concern, then cost, then quality, and then authenticity. We talk about polarity. Of, of the, for some reason, um, the, the polar opposites come off as real. Cool geeks with Geek Squad is an example that we use. And to me, like most of the happiness literature, I mean, I, I, I just, I, I tire of it. My favorite book on the subject is called Against Happiness, which actually ought to be called For Melancholy. And, uh, and I like to use the, a couple examples to illustrate that one is the, just the book of Psalms, right? The combination of praise and lament, right? Brings you joy. And to me, joy is a higher echelon than mere happy. Every time I think about happiness, I think about the, the happy real estate couple on American Beauty, like listening to motivational tapes. So they're always up. You're like, who are these people who are always happy? And, and I remember the show Crossroads. They would pair contemporary non-country artists uh, with an old uh, country artist. And when Mumford & Sons was on a show with Emily Lou Harris, you know, they play a song, they each play each other's song, and then they talk about their little conversation in between. And Emily Harris at one point said, you know, I just do not like what I call like, like cotton candy songs, right? They're just too lighthearted and too upbeat all the time. And then uh, Mumford, at least. Jim, did like, your voice go out? Oh, am I here there still or no? Okay. It did. Okay. So, so Mumford speaks up and he, he goes, you know, you know, we're minor chords all the time. We, we have such melancholy in our music. And then he said, but in playing them, there is such joy. And I love Mumford says that it's exactly that. I mean, because it, because it, it touches on their lyrics for me and for many others, it touches on something that that's, that's at its core that induces a certain emotion. So I, I would be intrigued with the combination of emotions as a means of eliciting a particular response. And if in places that do engage to analyze them, what pairing, even three or four, what pairing of emotions are, are evident in various experiences. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really a fruitful direction. I was asked last night, I was a guest on a podcast talking about movies, and at one point they said to me, well, who's your, your favorite villain? And I said, well, my favorite villain is actually usually kind of a combination of a villain and a hero. There, there's got to be some redeeming aspect, some complication to who they are just to be pure evil. Um, you know, maybe they got disillusioned in life. Maybe they're, you know, largely evil but they've got they in the end they give in to some virtuous action i, I said I, I find the complication more rich and intriguing for me and so yeah i i think there's some opportunity for businesses not just just aim for it you guys rightly say in the book you know those customer satisfaction surveys i mean that's such a boring way of approaching happiness just as a customer satisfaction and then just to merely go to happiness to me is certainly the outcome you want ultimately that sense that you're embracing the experience, that it was great for you, uh, reaffirmative. But if it could be in the experience itself, 
quite possibly more than one emotion seems to me a, a richer narrative. Dan, I Dan, to, if, I could, if I could do for one second, yeah. I love Dan, you bringing up satisfaction. That is really good because if you only ask about satisfaction and don't also ask about what made you dissatisfied, all you're going for is to make sure everybody thinks they're, they're satisfied. Well, what opportunity for improvement is there in that? Very little. <laughs> right. right. It's a low bar. We, in fact, one of the models in the book, we call the 3S model, goes from satisfaction to sacrifice. You know, satisfaction, meeting your expectations, sacrifice, giving you things that, uh, that close the gap between what you really want and what you had to settle for. And then surprise is the third S, right? And that's one of the, the, the core emotions is, is surprising people, giving them things totally outside of their expectations. Yeah, and I, and I think you need the surprise for the reason cited in the introduction, which is, you know, it's the tension you're trying to grab. Your your eyes, when you're surprised, literally go wider. Your eyebrows lift. You are taking in a broader field of vision. Uh, you've reoriented yourself. And so, yeah, I think that's key. Um, I'm going to switch now, as I was about to suggest, to a little slightly different angle. So, you know, a lot of this we can think about in terms of what's true for the customer. We can think about the business owner and how they're designing the experience. But then there are the employees enacting the experience. One of my favorite books of all time is called The Managed Heart, The Commercialization of Human Feelings Arlie by Arlie Russell Hochschild. And I do this when I'm on plane rides. I actually look at the flight attendants and see how they are coping with uh, the job that day and, and perhaps the irritating or demanding customer. What can we say about the emotions? Because obviously they, you know, you can just say, you know, you know, paint a smile on your face and get through your work shift. But what do we mean on, on a most profound level about the emotional labor that goes into the design, designing the experience for customers? Yeah, one of the things we say about experiences, and it's in the very subtitle of the original edition, which is work is theater in every business is stage, that, that when your business is staging experiences, then the workers are on stage. Um, and need to act in a certain way. And that absolutely is what Hawk Childs calls emotional labor. You have to bring your uh, emotions into it. You have to bring a part of yourself into it, um, if it is at all, to, to come off as, as authentic in, in, in any way. And, so and it, is a, it is a you know, requirement of those types of jobs. What we're shifting to here is the speaking of the application of our ideas to the employee experience. Here I will name the company by name. Stephanie Sonneban, now retired, who was the CEO of, of Sonesta Hotels, did a workshop with her one full day. A few months later, called her up like, you know, how's it going in terms of using this stuff? She said, we're not doing any of these things for customers. I go, what? She goes, we're first practicing all these things with our own employees. Because we tell people to go interact in a certain way with our guests. But when they go back to the house and the, the experience is not themed and is miserable, how on earth can you expect your people to behave a certain way if you're not treating them that way? So I actually took from that a great way to, to take any of our models, take the customer sacrifice. Let's talk about employee sacrifice, right? Where are things not exactly the way they want? All of the things we outline can be applied to the employee experience. So not only have their performances become better when they are interacting with, with people, to your point, Dan, but also as a chance just to practice the tools, right, before you go do them to other experiences that your customers are having. If you can't figure out how to stage an engaging, compelling experience, getting people to spend more time as an employee, how, how do you expect to have capabilities to get your customers to spend more time with you? Yeah, no, I think that's really my, my underlying point. I mean, they are essential to the equation. 
And as I said, my research has shown it's the, you know, people to people aspect that's so essential. So one can never lose sight of the fact that they're not just cogs in creating the experience naturally. And, I, and you never imply that because you're very concerned about, uh, you know, authenticity of the experience, for instance. Uh, but it just seemed to me as a really uh, important thing. So before we run out of time here, I, I wanted to get to something really contemporary. If this was, if we were discussing the movie Citizen Kane by Orson Welles, the key word at the end is rosebud. If I had to choose one word at the moment that I'm going to say to think about the experience, the experience economy, the overall landscape in this COVID-19 time, what about Bezos? What about Amazon? And you, you mentioned, you know, Amazon in the book, but how transformative is that going to be? What challenges does Amazon pose in the business landscape? And really kind of to bring this home, what is this all going to mean for customers in this new environment that's maybe going to emerge uh, post-virus? Well, I think in the in the very beginning of the book, one of the statements we make is that the internet is the greatest force of commoditization ever invented. That the frictionless marketplace means customers can instantly compare prices from one vendor to another and tends to push them down to the lowest possible price. And Amazon is a great example of that. Amazon is, com- is commoditizing, particularly retail stores out there, um, because you can get it uh, uh, cheaper. You can often get it more conveniently, maybe not quicker, but you can get it more conveniently because you don't have to leave your house for it to be able to come to your door. Obviously, something that is of, uh, of great uh, import uh, right now in, in these days. Um, and so it also, therefore, is a force for change that, that retailers in particular are either going to have to compete on the same time well saved basis that Amazon does or shift to a time well spent strategy. In other words, give shoppers a reason to come into the store because of the uh, experience that they create. You know, it all depends on how, they're, how they respond uh, to that challenge where internet shopping has, has grown by leaps and bounds and it's not going to go down. But also, and, and besides voting with their time and their dollars, I mean, how, how can customers, because everyone who's listening is a customer, they may, may not all be employees at a company enacting experiences or the owner, but for everyone who's a customer, what can be their takeaway from what you've, you've learned from all of your years of applying this? What, where's their leverage, their opportunities? What should they be monitoring, looking for in the experiences that they have? Very good. I, I you know, as people ask me what I think, I say, well, I don't know what to think yet. Um, <clears throat> this is not a discontinuity. This is a disruption from which different discontinuities will emerge. What to do immediately, you know, the reopening experience and bringing employees back to work experiences. Um, even sur- just finding a way to survive in alternative forms of revenue, that's going to be that's going to be defined by the people who are doing, because they've got the motivation to be inventive. It's not going to be guys like like me. I might say like us. I'm in a room full of books. That's not it. So I'm I'm thinking about what's what's beyond beyond the pandemic. What are the long term structural things that may emerge? Now to do that, I am keeping a log of what I encounter every day that does emerge. And one of the things to your point on Amazon, I think, you know, Amazon is long uh, saved time by shopping online for the delivery of goods. But the logical next thing is the delivery of services. It's, it's not, it's, and there's some of that already come to your house and, and wash your car, come to your house and, you know, groom your pet. But I, I can see stylists saying they're going to have a, they're going to have a come to your home business. There might even be the throwback of the insurance salesman sell, you know, in-house sales at your kitchen 
table. So I would be thinking about, and even experiences, can you, can you send a kit to enhance uh, an in-home experience? So I, I think the delivery of not just goods, uh, but the delivery of a person to perform a service, the delivery of props uh, to stage an experience, that would be one thing that even Amazon could be. Uh, don't be surprised as Amazon goes to delivering in-home services as the next layer of their offerings. They have people huh, showing up anyway. Huh. That, that's very intriguing. I, I could certainly see that happening. So um, we're about out of time, Joe and Jim. I want to thank you again for being my guest today on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number two, The Role of Emotions in Experiences. To check out other episodes or my books, lectures, or other activities, including my appearances on other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at the obligatory three W's dot sensory logic.com. Or if you've got follow-up questions for my guests today, feel free to email me at dhill at sensory logic.com. And if you enjoyed this show, be sure to give it a five-star rating or review online in building the following for a new podcast. I am of course grateful for every bit of social media support. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Since we've been talking about the customer experience today, I'm going to close with this observation from Jeffrey Gittimer, who said, don't give anybody any feelings you wouldn't want to have yourself. So that's it. Thank you very much. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. 